Welcome to Bunga Cast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. I'm Alex Hokili in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Uh, this podcast is also Philip Cunliffe in London and George Hoare, also in London, though he's away today. Philip Cunliffe in Canterbury, George Hoare's away, but in London. Right. Okay. Well, yeah, I hope everyone's keeping track. Also in London, someone who is yeah. my next door neighbor, practically, when he's in Sao Paulo, but um, right. he's in London right now, is Vincent Bevins. Hello. Hello. Thanks for thanks for having me again. Good to be be back. Yeah. No, it's great to have you back. Uh, for listeners who aren't familiar, Vincent was back on in uh, well a little while ago, episode one twenty one, um, where we discussed his excellent book, The Jakarta Method. And today we're going to be discussing protest. Um, his new book. It's very good. It's called If We Burn: The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. Um, now, listeners may not be aware, but the twenty tens really was a decade of protest, and that might be surprising. Um, because there is more protest than ever. And yet these aren't meant to be the most political times of all of history. And yet there's seems to be probably more protest now uh, globally than at any other point uh, in human history. So that maybe seems kind of paradoxical, and we're going to explore that as we go forward. Um, but Vincent, first of all, um, I mean, you covered a huge amount of ground in this book in terms of um, geography and time. Um, I mean, it's obviously limited to about a decade, but certainly in terms of like the places you covered, it's a lot. Um, I think 10 countries, correct me if I'm wrong, Bahrain, Yemen, South Korea, Tunisia, Egypt, Turkey, Brazil, Ukraine, Hong Kong, and Chile. And probably those, the last group there were the ones that uh, garnered the most focus, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. So maybe to start off, I mean, tell us a little bit briefly, I guess you were, you know, you were working in Brazil. Um, You were a reporter here at the early part of the 2010s. but maybe reflecting across all of them, what was your favorite country to do the research for this book in? Yeah. Um, yeah. Wait, did you say South Korea? I think you might've missed South Korea. I did South Korea. No, I got South Korea. I got you it. did got it. So you yeah. got all of them. Yeah. So I, I did re I, I did interviews in 12 countries and then I end up ultimately deciding that 10 episodes are really what I'm looking at, which is mass protests that get so big that they either dislodge or fundamentally destabilize um, a given uh, government. And so I, what I try to do, like, you know, stupidly ambitiously is to try to build a history of the world from 2010 to 2020 around that particular phenomenon and act as if it is the most, um, important thing in the decade. I think you might as well build a history around that phenomenon uh, as much as anything else. And I kind of build the world, sorry, I build that, I build the story uh, as if Sao Paulo is the center of the world. I think you might as well, uh, just as much as I I feel like it every day. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I mean, most books that come out in the United States Street New York as the center of the world, like you might have, you know, Sao Paulo maybe has a lot more in common with, you know, there's only really one country like the United States, but there's a lot of countries like Brazil. Maybe we'll get to that. But um, so I put I put Brazil at the center, but that wasn't like interesting or new. So the countries that I liked reporting in the most, um, I don't know if I'm saying this just because they're at the beginning or because this is in the news now, but I think in Tunisia and Egypt, I had both uh, in Tunisia and Egypt, I had really interesting experiences. 
very different ones. Um, in Tunisia, you could really do the type of reporting that I'm used to. Like, you know, things have sort of fallen apart since the initial success of the revolution that started in 2010. But you could still go there and identi identify discrete actors um, and talk to them. So not only did that revolution like actually have different identifiable groups that were active in identifiable ways, you could, when I was doing the reporting in the book, when I was doing the reporting for the book starting in 2021, like go sit down with them. So I met like the family of Mohammed Bouazizi, uh, the man who self-immolated in uh, the center of the country in late 2010. I met with uh, the Hojaist Communist Party, which was quite influential in getting protests off the ground in the region. Uh, I met with the large union structure that was really important in making the revolution happen. I met with Enada, which is their sort of Islamist, or they would like to say maybe like post-Islamist political party. So like you, in Tunisia, you could go, all of their categories are recognizably um, Western as well, because there's so much intellectual back and forth with France, like the two really radical parties in Tunisia, I like, always liked this, um, were founded as the result of a journal, a French language journal called Perspectives. Um, so everything was like, the kind of reporting that I was able to do was fun and was the type of professional work that I'm used to. Um, but then Egypt was fascinating for precisely the opposite reason. Like you couldn't do reporting at all. It was insane to be in Cairo and to be reporting, even in like a very broad way about. And, and, and this is like in the recent years. I mean, I guess you were there, whatever, over the past couple of years, right? I was there in 2021, ironically. Well, not ironically. I was there in 2021, uh, the last time Gaza, Gaza, the last time Gaza was bombed by Israel. Um and even though I wasn't like trying to like crack the story wide open of the 2011 revolution or the 2013 coup that installed Sisi, you just couldn't do any reporting at all. So people would tell you if you're in public, especially in the center of Cairo, and you're talking about politics, someone will call the cops and you'll get arrested. And people told me, OK, I know you've met this guy and I know you met that, this woman, but they're spies. And then those people would say, no, no, they're spies. And everyone would say all these people that are spying for the state don't want to, but they're being forced into spying for the state uh, because they have a relative in jail or somebody that they know that's in jail that is being used as leverage against them. So it was like the most intensely like oppressive regime that I had ever experienced. Um, and you couldn't even do any reporting at all, but I found that interesting in a way that it had come like at the end of this, you know, I think undeniably incredibly inspiring revolution in 2011. By 2021, you like couldn't even talk about politics on the streets. Like cops would just like grab your phone, look through your camera roll, and if there was anything that seemed vaguely political, you'd go to jail. If you had signal on your phone, you might go to jail. Um, so yeah, I'm going with those two countries for very different reasons. No, that's good. And the Egypt case is is um, maybe exemplifies the narrative arc of the book, which is um, all these people with great expectations, and it all ends up going badly. Um, ends up worse um, than it than it started in a lot of the cases anyway. Um, and maybe mm -hmm. we can come on to, well, we will come on to why that happened. I mean, F Phil, actually, I'm, I'm going to put you in, in the uh, the role of the man on the street. Uh, what's your favorite protest of the 2020, <laughs> 2010s? What, was there any of these kind of that, that marked you? I mean, just kind of going off of what, you know, following these things, I think, as we all did um, virtually, you know, where it kicks off in Egypt or it kicks off in Brazil or it kicks off in Turkey, you know? That marked me. I don't know about marking me, but because um, I wasn't directly connected to any of them in terms of these countries. Um, I suppose two, I've got two abiding, well, one abiding um, 
kind of insight gained from somebody who is more closely connected to um, the Arab Spring than I was. I suppose the one that I thought was most important and significant was indeed the Tunisian one, at least from afar, it seemed that way. Um, for many of the reasons that Vincent's already said, that it seemed to be um, the one where the likelihood of enduring democratic gains and gains for civil liberty and so on were the likeliest, and partly because you know Tunisian civil society was more um, sophisticated and relatively autonomous for all sorts of historical and present reasons compared to places where the state was much more likely to suffocate anything that happened, like in Egypt. Um, so I thought, you know, in terms of the potential, I guess, for the most advanced to be made, that did seem to me to be the story of Tunisia, though obviously more recently, even those gains seem to have been snuffed out. The other thing which stayed with me, and um, I suppose it stayed with me because it uh, underscored, I suppose, my own political naivety about the Arab Spring, was a Syrian-American friend who said at the time that if the Syrian opposition was unable to, and, you know, the Syrian kind of, the Syrian, I suppose, uprising became an abortive, you know, was an abortive revolution that turned into a jihad. Um, and she said at the time that if the Syrian opposition wasn't able to overthrow the government um, in a peaceful way, then they should never have allowed themselves to be maneuvered into the position of civil war. Um, because that would end up just ruining the country. And at the time, that seemed to me um, impossible because, you know, it was the government that was massacring the protesters. So it seemed to me, and, you know, hundreds of people were being killed by the Ba'athist regime in Syria. And so it seemed to me to demand a kind of, um, you know, a kind of superhuman level of restraint on the part of any opposition in Syria for them to be able to withdraw from the field in the face of such overwhelming brutality and provocation from the government. Um, in retrospect, of course, I think she was right, given the way things turned out in Syria, that the you know there was simply no democratic, secular, national opposition that was strong enough to um, to confront the government and to control the movement as a whole without it fragmenting into religious and ethnic sectarianism and ultimately into an Islamist jihad against the Ba'athist state. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I, not all of them degenerate into civil war, of course. Um, but the, I think there's a there is a general sort of template that emerges reading through all these cases, Vincent. You basically have, you know, some small protest about something, um, police repression, the images go yep. viral. It's communicated right. all via uh, social media, not just the images, but people calling each other onto the streets. And then it right. kind of maybe gets out of control or doesn't end up in the way that people wanted it to. Indeed, the way that they wanted to is like a, a question because you don't really know who who to ask right. about what the way they, right. you know, what the intention was behind it exactly. Um, that's, I guess, if you, I don't correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me the general template. Um, do you yeah. think that there's a case just to kind of be concrete and, and talk about a specific example that is most representative of what happened across the protest decade? Um, yeah, representative is tough. I mean, so I, I, I think what you've just um, outlined is right. Um, the, the, the viral image of uh, state repression is like in the majority of the cases, but it's, it's viral on social media and traditional media so often like there's these things really working hand in hand. It's like Al Jazeera and Facebook uh, rather than just Facebook. 
And then, yeah, I think there's like three movements, right? There's like the initial thing that not that many people really care about. So in Brazil, it's the 20 cent bus fare rise that like, you know, Haddad had had, had planned and promised to raise before he took over, uh, before he won the election. In Ukraine, it's the association agreement with the European Union, which actually isn't very good. And most, you know, there's a minority of Ukrainians that actually want to sign it. In Turkey, there's Gezi Park, uh, which is like, yeah, you know, the secular uh, middle class in Istanbul would love to keep that park, but like it's not a huge deal. And then you get the second mo- movement after the the crackdown, um, in which like there's a huge sort of indescribable, often illegible sort of ball of energy in the streets. With you know, often it was said, you know, like with a floating signifier, like everybody brought in their own um, their own demands, and often people didn't know what to do with that. And then inevitably. Um, people, after people come into the streets for all of their very various reasons with their own ideas of how things should go or what this is all about, inevitably a concrete solution is imposed upon the streets, like something real happens. And once again, the thing, the thing get, gets very specific. Once again, it goes back to being a very, very, uh, one of a very specific outcome out of, you know, an in, infinite possibilities. Um, and so like, I guess I put, I mean, if Brazil were not, uh, at least an exemplary case of what I'm trying to talk about, then it would, then I would have messed up in writing this book because I really build, build the book around the Brazilian case. And I think, you know, there's a couple of things that I think make it, um, important. Um, a couple of elements that appear there that appear other places, although you know, it's, there's some things that do not appear. Um, uh, and of course, like, again, like I, like I said at the beginning, I think Brazil is a more normal country than most others. Like, you know, I don't think, you know, your listeners will know the Brazilianization thesis. I think this is like, uh, this is relevant. I think there's a lot more countries like Brazil in the world than like the US um, or, in, you know, certainly like Hong Kong, right? Like this is a, a yeah. very strange situation. Um, in 2013, like all three cases sort of follow this, the, the, the template of you have imperfect democracies in middle income countries, you know, like you have a democracy of some kind, the person was elected that's in power in, in, in uh, Turkey and Brazil and in Ukraine. But then you get the thing being read as if it is the Arab Spring, you get the thing being interpreted by media as if they're doing Arab Spring, Brazil style or doing Arab Spring, Ukraine style, and this matters to the outcome. So that's one of the two reasons that I think Brazil is exemplary is that this like strange slippage of tactics or at least interpretations from one country to another country um, ends up mattering. Like I, I've talked about this a lot with like other journalists that were tasked with covering this in the time in Brazil, Brazilian and foreign. And we often came to the conclusion that we would not have uh, interpreted June 2013 the way we did if we had not been like immediately slotting it into what we had already perceived to be the Arab Spring. And then two, uh, I think that another part, thing that is exemplary about the Brazil case, or at least that like reflects across many, many other um, of these episodes in the decade is in moment two, you know, in that second act, when there's a huge ball of energy in the streets, like no one knows what to do with it. Like when the crackdown comes on the Movimento Passo Livre um, and then goes viral and then causes the media to say that the protests are good and then huge amounts of people come into the streets, no one knows what to do with this ball of energy. No one knows what to do with this street movement. The MPL doesn't know what to do with it. Haddad, the mayor of Sao Paulo, doesn't know what to do with it. Dilma Rousseff doesn't know what to do with it. Most people on the streets don't know what to do with it. Uh, the media, like, we're, like, running around trying to figure out how to explain it. You know, there are a certain set of actors that 
find ways to take advantage of it. And that, you know, I think defines part of Brazilian history afterwards. But I think that's another thing that that really reverberates across the decade. Like, oh, we like accidentally caused a huge mass uprising. Like what happens now with this mass of people? You know, I think this like dictates um, what happens in Ukraine. I think it dictates what happens in Egypt. Um, I think so. Those are two of the reasons that I thought it was okay to put Brazil at the center of this story. Uh, in addition to the fact that it's just like the case that I know the best and that I, that, you know, that, that I lived through. Yeah, I mean, I, you had a, a, you know, you make reference to a very small part you played insofar as you had a tweet um, that kind of went viral and ended up connecting up Turkey and Brazil, June 2013, and uh, and and Turkey's Gezi Park uprising. Maybe tell us about that because I think that captures a little bit of how mimetic these things are and the way yeah. you've already ma- made reference to the fact that these things that happened in 2013, for example, are conscious of themselves being like Tahrir Square in, in Cairo or being like the Arab Spring. Yeah. So the first time, like I'm on Twitter just starting in 2012. Uh, ironically, it's like two American reporters that are in uh, in Sao Paulo in 2012 to give a talk about the importance of social media and democratization. There are They are like two guys that have really like you know, like everybody else in liberal media at the time, we're saying that um, social media was going to make the world more progressive or more free or whatever you wanted it to be, like it was going to happen according to your own view of like uh, uh, progress. Um, and on June 13th, uh, 2013, which is the day of the crackdown that Brazil's mainstream media asked for, um, a lot of other journalists get hit harder with police repression. Uh, two friends of mine, Piero Locatelli and Giuliano Valloni, like really go viral and end up giving, you know, Piero, like, you know, cringes endlessly to this day about this, but like generating like a cute little name for the the, the protest uprising, like the V for Vinegar uh, protest, because it was like named, <laughs> that is like a play on V for Vendetta, the movie, and a reference to the fact that he was arrested for for holding vinegar. So I didn't get the repression that was as bad or as, as Giuliano's or as famous as Piero's. But I get tear gassed. And when I get tear gassed, the crowd around me erupts into a chant saying, like, love is over. Turkey is here. Well, more cabo, a Turkia taqui, or like, a kia Turkia, I forget exactly what they're saying. Um, and I post that on Twitter and it goes viral around the world, but especially in Turkey and in Gezi Park. A bunch of uh, protesters over the next few weeks, like, make signs and like send them to me, like saying we're in solidarity with with Sao Paulo, the whole world is Sao Paulo. And this is reminiscent of what, something that was happening back in 2011. People were saying the whole world is Tahrir. And like saying that everywhere is Sao Paulo and that Gezi Park and Tahrir Square are in, you know, uh, are are in communication or are sort of asking for the same thing makes more sense than when a lot of like Western European or North American activists in 2011 thought they were going to do Tahrir Square in their countries. That was an even stranger mm-hmm. uh, right. iteration. <laughs> like, and that was like really, really explicit. Like a lot of the student protesters here uh, in the UK thought they were doing Tahrir. Occupy Wall Street like ex- was an explicit attempt to do Tahrir. Uh, and if you, but if you look at like really what Tahrir was, because they also... They ended up generating far more energy in the streets than they were expecting. They didn't expect to take the square. They didn't expect the Egyptians. You mean, yeah, yeah. The Egyptians did not expect to be in a position to take over uh, the center of Cairo, and they end up taking the square. And ultimately, what Tahrir ends up being is a lot of people standing in the center of of the capital asking for a military coup. And in the Egyptian context, getting a military coup could be progressive, in uh, you know, with reference to the Mubarak regime, especially if the military coup leads to real elections, which they actually did. But like doing that elsewhere was really strange. 
Um, so this was the thing that made me think about like the weird things that make a post go viral. And I think it has a lot to do with like, again, slotting into things that people already know about or think that they understand very quickly. Like the, the fact that Brazilians were saying this is like those Muslim countries made it like really shocking and interesting to like not only users of Twitter, but like my editors that were looking for like a sexy story, the kind of the kind of stories that might like keep me from getting fired from being a journalist like everybody else in my profession. Um, and this like, you know, you could also you could really write this decade as the decade in which everybody tries to do Takrir and then um, and then follow how that works or doesn't work in, in various circumstances. But I think, yeah, that like right. that like strange copying and pasting of tactics is a real is really central to I mean, how it's, it's kind of a, it, it's a real kind of thomas friedman moment in a kind of world <laughs> is flat kind of way you know yeah. like people genuinely believe that no you know sao paulo is just like istanbul and for all that there might be some similarities you can draw it's you know the context the histories the the act the actors the the the, the government that they're opposing uh, right. you know ostensibly is different so um it it's a bit tricky and so i wonder if that says something about the social composition of the protest you know i mean there's a lot of talk you know i think back in the early 2010s of uh, you know the graduate without a future that was a, right. almost like a kind of a meme at the time and right. i wonder you know looking across all of these is that does that kind of capture who the people are or does it really vary place to place because i you know on the one i'm i'm a little bit skeptical of it simply just being kind of middle class student types but at the same time i also don't think it's like the people or the working class on mass manifesting themselves in, in these sorts of protests, especially insofar as um, you're trying to talk about the really connected people who might be saying, you know, Gezi is Sao Paulo. Right. So, yeah, I think that there are, um, there's a distinction there, which is interesting, which is that the people in the first half of the 2010s, especially in the very, very beginning of the 2010s that are online and savvy and using the internet, that is, I think, a particular class. Um, and in any given country, you can sort of look at relatively educated, um, relatively privileged uh, urban young people in in Egypt or or, or Turkey or Brazil. Um, those are the people that get online first. And I think like in Brazil, there's like I think it ends up being interesting that like Brazilian online culture ends up being shaped by like middle class or upper little middle class, like uh, uh, young people in the cities that like sort of lean right. I think that like you can kind of, in a strange way, explain the 2010s, if you want to, this is oversimplification, but through like who gets onto social media first, like there's a book that I just read, um, I think it's Post Journalism uh, by Andre Mir. And he has like, again, it's really, really schematic and like oversimplified, but basically it says like, in the first half of the 2010s, millennials and progressives learned how to use social media. And then second half boomers used learned how to use social media. And like mm. that explains like, that's why January 6th happens, you know, in 20. What is it, 2021 or 2022? You know, in the yeah. United States. <laughs> yeah. Uh that's like that's like older and more conservative uh 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 generation like trying to do their social media powered uh revolutions. But then if you look empirically, concretely at the actual people in the square, like after that original, that first that first um first act, the in the second act, you get quite a lot of people. But in general, they're not like the working class, they're usually not the organized working class. Tends, they tend to be um, slightly more materially privileged than average. This is often, and that's because like this is something that people discover too. Like for deep sort of, I think, ideological reasons, the mass protest was privileged, especially the idea of like a mass revolt would be privileged. 
But then if you think about like who can get to the center of the capital very quickly, it's going to be people that are slightly more privileged than people that live in the, the peripheries of a city or like are working as domestic laborers, right? So in Tunisia and Egypt, for example, like that second wave is quite a lot of unemployed, regular people with economic demands. Um, whereas that first wave that was online, that was like, or not even online, like interacting in a very savvy way with traditional media, because like everything really starts kind of because Mohammed Bouazizi's cousin knows how to take photographs and videos of the thing, of the, uh, the, the wake of the self-immolation of his cousin and spread it to traditional and, uh, social media. So like, I think it's, it's, it's correct to say that they are very often middle class protests, but that like, again, it's like really important to pay attention to the, 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 the three waves, those three, that like the ways that things really do change from morning to night, from day to day uh, across all these cases. Is the gap between those waves, is that crucial to kind of understanding the dynamics in these different places? I think it's crucial to understanding the dynamics. And I think it's also crucial to understanding the like very fatal errors that were made by journalists and even policy policymakers. Like for example, looking at Tur- Ukraine, and coming up with a narrative to say it's all the pro-European liberals, which like they were the first 100 people out on the streets. But that second wave was not concerned with with that exactly. They often were concerned with. Um, and again, this is oversimplifying as we must on like a podcast, uh, like, you know, looking at a history of a decade, concerned with economic improvements, concerned with, you know, de-oligarchization of the Ukrainian economy. And then police brutality, because that's often the actual spark. But then it's very easy in the West to be like, oh, they just want to join the West. They love us. And of course, that flatters um, the the biases of the journalists and the audience in the West. But then misses the middle bit, which is where there's a huge influx of people, um, what you would call, quote unquote, normal people, regular people. But I think it becomes clear also in what I call the mass protest decade that there's no such thing as normal people. There's just like a specific configuration of concrete human beings. Or you can do the Russia thing and and you can point to the fact that there really is a third moment after that huge mass of energy is unleashed on the streets of the capital of Ukraine, where the armed far right establish hegemony over self-defense forces and really push for um, the end of a democratically elected government. And you can do the Russia thing and just pretend that that's the whole thing. You can just right. be like, and you can find the images of those guys and you can say, well, that's all it is. That's the whole thing that it is. Yeah. Um, and, and presumably, yeah. presumably, Ukraine is the only place that happened of the places you've studied where you've had like um, a genuine kind of armed right aspect of these uprisings. Well, the right comes out in Brazil and Turkey in 2013. Uh, like the Grey Wolves show up in Gezi Park, but they like they don't win the battle for the for 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 their, the signification of the of the square. And I think it's like. Largely because the like the ultras in central Istanbul tend to be left leaning, like the 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 Besiktas and the Fenerbahce ultras that come out end up coming out with like left wing banners rather than being like in a position to push the the square far to the right. And also, it just kind of fizzles. Um, you get violence. You get right wing violence uh, at the end of. Uh, twenty nineteen in Hong Kong, which again, there's a very easy mistake you can make if you want to. Um, to say that that is the same thing as what is happening in the middle of 2019, but they're not like they're not like organized militias. No, it's just uh, it's just people that 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 take out sort of this energy on on mainstream or mainland Chinese people. Um, but then but, there's uh, the other cases that become wars very quickly. So that's you know that's another that's another case. I mean, I guess Sunni militias in Syria are like 
you could call them the armed right. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean yeah. it's uh, yeah, it's an yeah. interesting comparison. Yeah. I mean, in all of the cases, I think, um, or most of them, there is to a certain degree a co-optation. Um, or a yes. channeling of the energy to a certain group or certain people who are either more organized, as you, you, you point out the case of, of uh, the armed far right in, in Ukraine, but also just of more powerful agents. So whether right. it's the media, the kind of oligarchic media, or sitting politicians who are able to channel things um, to, you know, to their benefit. And I think what comes through, I think, and one of the highlights of the book for me is in the penultimate chapter where you're trying to kind of pull together all these pieces and you bring together some of the, your star interviewees, as it were, from these different right. places and ask them to reflect on, you know, what would you do differently or what do you regret? And a lot of them voice a, a, a quite fundamental point and an important theme throughout the book, which is um, we shouldn't have rejected representation. Um, right. That or that politics abhors a vacuum, which is a bit of a cliche, but is very true and comes and is a and is a point that gets hammered home, um, you know, tacitly throughout the book. What's like, wrong with cliches? This is one of the things that I don't like about like the the, the 21st century media environment. Like you have to come up with like new analyses all the time. Sometimes it's just stuff is just right and it stays right. You know, <laughs> like when you talk about like the military industrial complex in the in the U.S., it sounds like you're like you like talking about like groovy like 1970s like concepts but it's just like it still is the military industrial complex like we you know that's just some things just remain true and uh and like yeah cliches uh you know stick around for a reason and and i think in the, in the beginning of the 2010s we thought that we could throw out a lot of the lessons of like 3,000 years of political struggle because of like the internet uh turns out that's not right um unfortunately it'd be great if it was true it's just not right So obviously, the the flip side to representation and leadership is um, things like, and, and you kind of um, identify these in that same chapter: apparent spontaneity, leaderlessness, horizontalism, digital coordination, public mass protest, and you could probably throw in um, as well prefiguration. Right. Um, so maybe for people who maybe aren't familiar with some of these cases, or to kind of just to illustrate it, is there a case that you could bring up to talk through? how a lot of these protests saw themselves or how some of the initiators of the protest to not call them leaders, some of the initiators of these protests saw themselves and, and how they, um, how they saw what they were trying to do. Yeah. And so that like particular package, that recipe of, of tactical elements or tactical and organizational elements, I try to explain like where each one comes from and I try to explain that none of them are natural. I try to explain that they don't have to go together, but they really feel like they're supposed to um, for a lot of people in the 2010s. But this varies, right? So in the case of Brazil, I think, as you know, the Movimento Passi Livre really believed in direct tell action. Us, tell, tell us who they are because listeners yeah, probably right. won't be familiar. Yeah, yeah. We, I, I assume you, because you know, like you've been talking about this nonstop for the last 10 years, but outside of Brazil. Uh, <laughs> I mean, even, a, even actually Brazilians, I found that Brazilians yeah. forgotten who they are because the MBL has really stolen their thunder. The, 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 well, you should, t- you should tell us about how that happened too, because that's right. good. Fantastic. Yeah. So um, the Movimento Passi Livre, the Free Fair Movement is born in 2005, but they're really kind of the class of 1999. They all, a lot of them used to work at Indie Media Brazil. 
they were linked ideologically and organizationally to the anti or alter globalization movement. Uh, a lot of, like a lot of them went to the same university. A lot of them were from the anarcho punk scene. Uh, they had all known each other for quite a long time, and they organized around the full decommodification of public transportation. So, in the final instance, they wanted the state to make bus rides and metro transportation free for everyone. And what they always did uh, every year from 2005 to 2013, whenever there was a uh, an increase in the price of transportation, they would organize protests, and they were. Some some would now say dogmatically horizontalist. So this group not only had no leaders, they had no division of labor. So uh, this small group of people would rotate all of the tasks that the, the the group would carry out, and to make any decision, they had to reach full consensus. And this was something that like became you know was a big part of sort of Occupy Wall Street and a lot of other movements were looked had this idea of horizontalism, meaning really like really like so anti-authoritarian that the idea of like taking a vote and all doing something as a result, that's authoritarianism because like every single person needs to agree to the plan or else that's an imposition of collective will somehow. The Polish parliament. The what, what the Polish parliament? Yeah, it was like, I mean, some of the acts, I mean, I knew people involved on the edges of, um, or maybe not even on the edges. I, I did some of the people involved in Occupy Wall Street, and they said, I mean, they were kind of polit- grad students, political theorists, and they used the example of the Polish parliament because the famous before Poland's partition, part of the reason it was partitioned is because they had this oligarchic parliament of nobles, and each right. noble had a veto. And so it was impossible to organize themselves in time to be able to stave off the partition of Poland. And so they were the ones who used this example of the Polish parliament in Occupy, because the insistence on every participant having a veto made it impossible to get anything done. Yeah, I mean, it's a great way to, if you want, you know, looking back, I'm being sort of unkind because a lot of people really believed in this, but it would be a great way to like, to make a, a country ungovernable, wouldn't it, if you were to write that into the constitution. <laughs> um, uh, so, but they, it worked for them for eight years because they knew each other well enough. Um, they really shared ideological and tactical approaches. Um, and so, and they also really believed in direct action and prefigurative direct action. So there was a set of um, spontaneous or, you know, I mean, if you want to get really theoretical, which, you know, maybe you guys do, I don't know. I kind of think spontaneity is not actually real. I think there's no such thing as spontaneity. If you really want to um, be honest about it, I'm basically stealing that from Rodrigo Nunes, but I, I agree with him anyways. Um, so I now think it, but they really believe in uh, the triggering a mass revolt as a way to get things done. And this is because basically they've seen this happen in other parts of Brazil, going back to Bahia and Florianopolis earlier uh, in the 2000s. So they shut down, uh, they they block turnstiles, they make it impossible for people to pay, or they block the public, uh, they block uh, large roads, um, forcing essentially uh, uh, some sort of chaos in the city, um, inevitably entering into conflict with police, and hopefully... Um, spurring more people to come to the streets. They always knew that they needed to lose control. This is what something they told me. They always knew that they wanted to somehow lose control over the streets. They always knew that it needed to get out of hand. They, they needed to inspire more people to come behind them. But then they said, you know, in retrospect, it got much, we lost control to a much greater extent than we ever expected. And we didn't like it. Um, they, they found out that people coming out to the streets after them chronologically is not quite the same as coming um, to the streets behind them. So in June 2013, after that uh, protest that I described that I was uh, repressed at, 
so many people come into the streets uh, that they they don't really know what to do with the the new arrivals. And the new arrivals come because of the way that they've understood the protests as presented to them by the media. Um, so on like the first day of the big influx, I'm out on the streets and I see a group of what we would now recognize as like proto Bolsonaristas, guys in uh, you know, like beefy white guys in football tops, yellow and green uh, football jerseys, like getting into arguments with the original punks and leftists. A week later, they actually throw the many of the original left wing parties off the streets. They they physically expel them. So just to clarify, so when these guys come on the Bolsonaro, Bolsonaristas, like are they... They're there because they're just looking for a fight, or are they there because no. they they're also angry about the price rises and what have you? They're angry about their own things, and so this is a really strange like. So this it's is a why they throw anger box that you can just yeah, shout it's like, into. It's, it's in, so the media basically extends an open invitation to the entire country. Is there anything you don't like? Come to the streets and say that, right? And like this happens because I think deep in our sort of dumb journalist brains uh the on the morning of january sorry on the morning of june 13th 2013 the mass media in brazil is saying this is a really bad thing these punks and anarchists need to be cleared off the streets but then their own our own especially like journalists like white photogenic middle class uh reporters at brazil's most mainstream outlets get hit and there's like an outpouring of sympathy not only in, in, among the media but in the population for for whatever this protest is but like for the media to switch their narrative from this is a bad thing to this is a glorious patriotic uprising in defense of. And then they have to look deep in their like ideological toolbox to find something they can put into that sentence to make it to make it possible to say that it's good to go to the streets. So these guys that show up. <laughs> it's, it's worth it's worth. Sorry, but um, yeah, it's possibly the funniest thing I've ever witnessed live because, I mean, I was living in London, not in Sao Paulo at the time, but um, following this on on like social media and whatever. Um, and um, I think global. I don't remember if I was able to watch it online. But anyway, um, and they, you know, they're kind of quite sensationalist journalist who covers like crime and whatever um does a poll yeah. where he asks like do you support this rioting um and then instead of expecting you know the usual kind of audience to be like no this is terrible 90 percent no it was like 70 percent yes we support it and he's like i think you haven't understood the question um what well, we're gonna restart the poll <laughs> he does it again and it's like same result and then he suddenly stumped and then he goes like yeah maybe actually anyway that's like a real perfect pivot moment where the mainstream media goes okay um Wait, so if we can't stand against this, we're going to need to just, you know, to put it cynically, we're going to need to kind of take control of this or, or channel it to our uh, advantage somehow. Yeah. And you could like watch, you could, cause you could, the, the clip is on YouTube. It's Datena. You could watch Datena, like his eyes sort of like roll back in his skull and he's like frantically looking for some reason in his kind of like reactionary, like law and order brain. Like what can make this, what can make it okay to do rioting? And he's like looking and he's like, grabbing for something. And so I don't think that major media in Brazil, like Globe or whatever, try to redirect it. I think they're just like, the only things that we can think of to say that could be a reason that a protest like this is good end up being sort of necessarily the center-right kind of stuff that Globo believes in, right? And so to answer your question, Philip, so on January 17th, which is the next big protest after I get tear gassed, after we all get attacked, it's very strange. Like, there's all kinds of people there. And like at the front, there's still kind of the same group of identifiably university educated leftists, but there's new, there's just like a lot of normal looking people. 
And some of them, not all of them, are bringing patriotic symbols. Some of them, not all of them, are like probably sort of like common sense right right wing or anti politics guys. I think even they're more anti political than they are even consciously right wing at this point. And they come just with their own ideas. And a lot of times they're waving a sign that says corruption. They're saying, you know, Lula's a crook. And the new punks, and this is, again, it's really funny, but it's so like tragic looking back on it. The new punks see it as their job to like call in rather than call out the new arrivals. They're like, oh, no, 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 guys, like waving nationalist symbols uh, is quite dangerous in a protest like this. That can lead to fascism. We want to stay uh, focused on uh, bus fares. We want to stay focused on improving the welfare state. And these new guys, I think not yet right wing, but like I'm sure that these guys became Bolsonaristas. We're like, fuck you. I don't want to listen to you. Like I reject you acting as if you know something about this protest that I don't. I'm here for my own reasons. And then when I got back to my house later that night, lo and behold, even though that was kind of a minority of people on the streets, like white people or like beautiful young white, like Brazilian women with like um, green and yellow, like face paint, even though that was a small minority of what I saw in the streets, that's what Global put on TV. That's what like the rest of the country and the rest of the world saw as what was happening on the streets. And so the next day, there was quite a higher proportion of people like that. I think because the country saw the, the reporting, yeah. believed yeah. that's what it was all about, and then went to the thing that they thought existed. And this is something that the original MPL that didn't know, they were like, what is going on? These people aren't showing up to the protests that we put on. They're putting, they're showing up to a protest that didn't exist until the media said it did. And, and, and I think this, you know, into various, you know, Brazil becomes the most strange and like paradoxical for me, but something like this happens across um, the decade. And so because of horizontalism, because of the way that they don't believe in leading anything and the, because of the way that, that they don't believe in leading anything and the way that they have to uh, reach full consensus, they can't do two things. One, they can't decide on how to change tactics in the face of very, very different circumstances. So they have like 14, 16 hour meetings trying to come up with a new plan. They can't figure out what to do. Two, waves of Brazilians want to join their group. Brazilians show up saying, we want to join the NPL. We've seen that you've organized these cool protests. You're heroically fighting the police. We want to join the group. But their horizontalism does not allow them to integrate huge numbers of people at once because there's two ways they can do it. One, they can set up a like two-tiered structure where the original organizers do the 14-hour meetings, but everyone else is kind of allowed to like do smaller tasks. But that's called the Leninist deviation that is discarded immediately. That is that's like that, that would be hierarchy. That would be introducing everything they, they tried to avoid um, for eight years. But they also can't let them all join because if you let like 100 people join or 1,000 people join a movement that is built around 40 people that agree about everything, now the movement is just whatever everyone says it is because everyone has an equal voice. Everyone can block everything. It's the Polish parliament. Um, but then, so to answer here, this is a, a long answer to a simple question. But like in Egypt, for example... The movement, I would say, the vast majority of people in the square were not horizontalist. They were just involved in a horizontally structured protest. They would have loved to have the kind of things that Tunisia had a little bit more concretely, as mm -hmm. you said. They would have loved to have a, a large autonomous labor union that could get behind uh, a revolutionary, uh, that could take a revolutionary position. They would have loved to have a revolutionary party. They would have loved, loved to have civic society organizations. They just didn't. And then what yeah. you have is the media showing up. And there's an elective affinity, I think, between the elements in the square, which are both ideological and horizontal, and like, again, the deep ideological assumptions in the brains of people like Anderson Cooper, or like whoever shows up in the New York Times, 
because they want to see the thing that will tell them that it's kind of like the new Berlin Wall protest. Like it's it's going to be a liberal post-ideological thing. So they do find the elements in the square, but it's not really that they even believe it. It's just that the concrete decimation of civil society in Egypt under sort of uh, brutal neoliberalism, brutal neoliberalism, but also the Mubarak authoritarian regime just means that they are horizontal rather than horizontalist. So, but on this, so I'm curious, like how, given that you see the horizontalism recurring and the differences, the concrete differences between all these different places, you know, like you talked about, um, well, you know, between Egypt and Brazil, for instance, um, how do you, so how do you explain the recurrence of horizontalism as a global phenomenon in circumstances that are so disparate and so different in national, kind of geographic, political, ideological, all these different contexts? Well, so it exists, horizontalism as an approach, an explicit approach, uh, exists to different degrees. Um, and it, express, it, exists, it exists to different degrees, I think, because of both material and ideological reasons. So on the one hand, this becomes the kind of thing that is easiest to do and the most possible to put together in a globe in an era of global neoliberalism after the decimation of mass parties after the decimation of left-wing structures after the decimation of uh, trade union movements around the world so in many many cases and you know horizontalism is born out of a moment in 2001 in argentina where there's an absolute collapse of representative structures so to various degrees around the world you have this particular form being made easier or being made perhaps the most possible or the only possible form that a movement can take quickly. Um, and in other cases, you have the actual ideological elements, which trace back to the alter globalization movement, some parts of um, what is what becomes the like generally accepted idea of what the new left was, rather than perhaps what it always was. Um, and then again, you have this third element where there is this elective affinity between the media that shows up and what in the square yeah. that can be called horizontalist. So hopefully what I do in each case is outlined to the extent that there is this kind of an approach. Um, Hong Kong, by the end, they go for like all out absolute hyper individualism, like everyone's allowed to do whatever they want. No one can question that. Uh, Gezi Park is quite um, like takes in like an assemblyist uh, prefigurative uh, approach for quite a while. But again, not everyone likes that. A lot of people in on the Turkish left are like, don't do that. We need to elaborate a set of demands. We have we have this brief moment that we can we can present to Erdogan a list of things that we want, and he probably will give them to us. Um, in Egypt, basically, I think it was just a small group of Western-facing liberals that actually kind of believed in this stuff. But horizontality, uh, I think, is global because of global neoliberalism and ideological diffusion of basically Californian and like North American anarchist slash libertarian uh, approaches to politics that everyone at least knows about, if not they've, if not having been actually uh, really, really influenced about, influenced by, they at least like have trickled down in some form or another to most of the planet in the 2010s. Just one more point on this. So I'm curious to hear just a bit more about those places where there was some kind of organized or some kind of civil society infrastructure and some political organization. So you mentioned like a Hodges party in Tunisia, the Turkish right. left, you know, has kind of um, strong autonomous organized roots and so on. Yep. So just to talk a bit about the interaction between these upsurges and existing institutions, did they were they unable to direct them? Did they defer to them? Did they retreat from them? How did these established left groups um, interact in the context you've looked at? Yeah, so 
I, I think as Alex like indicated earlier, uh, often what is generated accidentally is a power vacuum or at least a situation in which um, elites are willing to give up something, but also a situation in which the square cannot really speak for itself. So some degree of co-optation, I think it happens always. I think some degree of someone stepping into the vacuum and saying we are what this is, or even like seizing the square uh, and and sort of you know moving in a direction and, and claiming or whether entirely truthfully or or uh, partially truthfully or <laughs> not truthfully at all that we are building upon what the square wanted. So as like a rubric to understand what happens, you can see who ends up actually trying like able to make the square speak. Um, South Korea is an example where like. It's quite easy to speak with one voice, and unions have a play a role in helping that to happen. Um, you, know, you know, but they're asking for something quite easy, which is the impeachment of a corrupt president. Um, in Tunisia, I think that the the original left party, this uh, Tunisian Workers Party, is quite important in getting the protests off the ground, and then the UG the UGTT is really important at throwing its weight behind uh, the the call for the removal of of the leader of Tunisia and that works. Um, and in some cases, and then also then there's the, who enters the power vacuum in the moment of uh, reconstruction in the moment of transition. And in Ukraine, you know, it's not established organized left structures, but it is these militant far right groups that end up playing, not like an absolute role, which is the net Russian narrative, but punching above, above their weight in directing what happens next in taking some in playing much larger of a role than they should have based on their, you know, not only because they're neo-Nazis, but also just because of um, how few people in Ukraine actually agree with them in structuring the the transition. So it, like it, it varies widely. Um, or like in Bahrain, there is like two pretty um, well-structured, cautious groups that just get crushed by a much larger, more organized force, which is Saudi Arabia, which drives over the bridge and puts down the whole thing, even though the secular or the you know cross sectarian left party and the Shia opposition are being are are very well structured and know what they want and are asking for things that are quite reasonable. Um, somebody bigger comes along and and, and imposes meaning upon that uh, uprising. Yeah, I mean, one thing that occurs to me, kind of joining up some dots and also referring to an episode we had on this podcast a little while ago about the way people are induced to think under neoliberalism or under kind of financialization, um, which is very short termist and speculative, right? And like right. speculation becomes the way that we do things. And I made this note in the margins when I read your book, um, that it seems like the kind of speculative mode is the way that it's being done, because very few people have a, a, an idea of what their end goal is. Um, I think right. in a lot of these protests, they might have a demand, and sometimes it coheres around a demand. But in many cases, the protests start snowballing and exceeding the initial demand. So like Brazil is a good example of this, but so is Hong Kong, the way you illustrate it, where it's about ending this um, uh, rendition um, or not rendition. Um, extradition. Extradition um, treaty with, with, with mainland China. And then it becomes like these five point things and then it becomes an anti-China thing and it just kind of snowballs completely out of control. Um, and so... Yeah, what, what what hits what strikes me about it is that it's people kind of speculating. It's not that you have to come to a protest with like a ready-made idea of like what your endpoint is and exactly how you're going to get there. But I think it, with the, what I gathered at least from the interviews you've done is no one is ever actually sitting down and going, "Okay, <laughs> this is the end goal. This is the strategy to get there." It's speculative all, the whole way along the way. It's like throw something out there. Okay, cool. Now we're here. Let's do this next. Um, and it's just hit and hope. I think it, is that right? 
Yeah, I think so. And I think, I mean, this is something that a lot of not only interviewees, but like theorists across the world um, come to understand is that these are protests that not only happen often in opposition to neoliberal economic policies, they happen, they are carried out by neoliberalized subjects. They are carried out by people who are really are quite individual. They really kind of think, them, think of themselves, you know, the, the, like the entrepreneurship of the self, I think ends up really mattering in, Brazil, in the Brazilian context. The, the sort of, the lack of ability to imagine actual revolutionary change, um, the sort of betting on the huge uprising and just sort of assuming that's going to work. I think these are, these are all like, some of the subjective conditions of of the uprising. And yeah, as you say, like, this is something that a lot of interviewees said, like, oh, we really, really didn't plan for what we were supposed what was supposed to happen after we got people on the streets. We just assumed that was going to go well. And then even if like, and there are several cases I think of this where you really could have got something. I mean, like Hong Kong, it was initially about the extradition bill, but like it wasn't really, it quickly became just about, I think, the larger question of autonomy from Beijing. But like the Hong Kong government does say, I mean, they say it in a very ham-fisted way. And this is, you know, I think even Beijing, uh, in addition with to like a lot of Hong Kongers would fault Carrie Lam for the way that she does this. She does say, okay, fine, no more extradition bill. But then when you have the opportunity to get more, you have sort of, yeah, everybody throwing stuff at the wall. And like, this is tragic. And I wish this is tragic. And I wish this wasn't the, the case, but you kind of get like the demands with the most upvotes or like the most retweets that become the ones that are presented mm. to the, the state. And very crucially, there's no exit strategy. It's not like a union organization where if you say, if we get a 30% wage, we will go back to work tomorrow. It's just like a lot of stuff. And if you are the state, even if you're predisposed to give the streets what they quote unquote want, um, even if that were possible to understand, there's no promise that they're going to just not turn around and ask for a thousand more things. So you ultimately, like in the Hong Kong case, Beijing just right. decides to wait, just to wait them out. They're like, you know, a lot of the stuff we could do, we don't really, you know, the last thing we want is to allow the United States to, you know, shine a huge spotlight on repression in, in Hong Kong. But like, what's the exit strategy? And when you have, again, when you have the Polish parliament, when you have everybody in the square having their own right to say what the thing is about, if somebody uh, elaborates three demands, which are rat- pretty radical, but also doable, um, and then the state gives in to them. The state has no 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 reason to believe that half of the square isn't going to say, nope, I veto that. We're still, we want more. That's not what we were asking for. Uh, and this becomes sort of like a fundamental and painful dilemma that appears that no one had really expected because no one had really expected to put that many people on the streets. Yeah. I mean, what's amazing, this is just a footnote in the book um, towards the end, but it's an amazing punchline, if only it were a laughing matter, um, right. where you note, similarly, Barack Obama had said that the biggest mistake of his presidency was failing to plan for the day after in Libya. Um, so, you know, it's not just uh, students in the street protesting who aren't thinking about the day after. Um, it's also the most powerful person in the world and um, around that period as well. So, um, yeah, it, do, it does seem to speak to something about our age, um, about a lack of ability to kind of plan um, except, you know, if you're Barack Obama, you can get away with it and nothing happens to you. Um, but uh, if you're a Hong Kong protester, you're uh, banged up by the PRC and the PRC. So, you know, um, kind of different consequences, I think. Yeah, no, I, mean, I think that, that that actually really matters a lot because I think the next line in that footnote is like, 
I don't know if I believe him because at the very least, the United States, maybe they, I'm sure Barack Obama, deep, deep in his heart, would have loved to see the flowering of like a pro-Western democracy in Libya or whatever. But if you look at the way that the, the U.S. actually acts in response to the so-called Arab Spring, but, you know, in many, many countries around the world in the last 20 years, it seems like they're quite fine with putting up with failed states. Like that might be like not what they're asking for, not what they hope to happen, but if that's what they get, that's okay. Um, whereas like Barack Obama, like unlike George Bush, I think should know better because George Bush was like dumb enough to really think that like Iraq was going to turn into Arizona. I think he like really thought that like you were going to get like, you know, uh, uh, like the suburb, like the suburbs of Canada or whatever, just like flowering in, in, in Baghdad. But, um, but yeah, I think that it just kind of, it didn't matter to, to Obama, whereas it really mattered to Egyptians or to Syrians, as you say, Philip, like what actually happens when you pick a fight you can't win or you start a process to try to improve your country and you realize, oh, actually, we don't, we can't. What we can just do is this other thing, which is um, very scary. So one thing that, I mean, we talked about this um, at a bar (laughs) about a year ago, Vincent, about the role of, of how protests changed or the protest doesn't really seem to have a a sense of its own objective. Um, And what ends up becoming kind of the protagonist in this story is the media. So I kind of want to ask you, is the media the protagonist in this story? And I don't just mean the mainstream media, but media kind of in in general, because because everything is so diffuse, um, uncoordinated, um, fragmentary, individualized, etc. It seems like media ends up being the kind of star of the show. Yeah, I mean, I put I this I'm in this book more than I would like to be. Um, because the media is more important, I think, for this decade than I would like it to be. And like, what I mean by that is like, deep in my heart, like, I would like history to be powered by like material concerns. I don't like to look to like, um, you know, phenomenological uh, 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 phenomenon as like the driver of history. Like it doesn't, I don't like deep down aesthetically, morally, I don't like the idea that we're kind of like getting distracted by something that we see and then like running after it. But I think in some parts of this story that, that you can only really understand what happens if you, if you place mediation at the center um, of the story. And I think, yeah, you said at the bar, like you don't want to overstate the, what was it? The hypermediation thesis? Was that, was that, was that what you call well, it? Yeah. But, but, yeah, but I, I end up even kind of coming back to it. And certainly these days I kind of think, well, kind of maybe, maybe all those theorists who said like media was going to be everything. Maybe they were kind of right. Um, I wish I, they weren't like, that's the thing. Well, I mean, I guess it yeah. may be the case that the book is about tactics, right? So if the book was about like deep structural changes, it would be strange for media to power the whole story. But if we're talking about the transfer of tactics and the adoption of particular, um, repertoires of contention, then I think media has to be at the center of the story. Because if you're looking at only like the sort of deep sociological structural factors, you can't explain why Brazil has an uprising of that type in June 20. You can't explain the apparent similarity of so many things across a decade in which um, political systems and economic conditions are so, so different. Like, it really is strange for there to be a quote unquote Brazilian spring. So for this book, I go back to the history of protest itself, um, like uh, as as one particular way of responding to injustice, of one particular way of of reacting to elites who abuse 
human beings. And it's important that like there are many, many ways to do that. But I mean, if you look at the history of protest, um, it always does exist in dialogue with media in some way or another. I think that I come to the conclusion that protests are fundamentally media actions or fundamentally communicative actions. You don't get protest until you get mass media, whether that is initially newspapers or in the middle of the 20th century, you see a, an acceleration or a multiplication effect on mass protest as a result of television and radio. And then I think with social media, you get uh, a, a another acceleration or multiplication effect um, on protest. So like you can go into the streets tomorrow and generate a spectacle that the whole world can see within one hour. Whereas uh, boycotts or strikes, which might be more effective at actually putting pressure on elites that care quite a lot about uh, economic performance, uh, they do not generate um, the sort of heat <laughs> or, 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 or get your blood going the way that a viral post with a really inspiring photograph might. And I think there's nothing wrong with protests being fundamentally communicative. Um, there's nothing wrong with um, understanding that getting a bunch of people on the streets to deliver a message to elites uh, is what we're doing, uh, as long as that is what is understood. But often what happens in this, um, I think two things happen in this in this decade uh, that have a lot to do with the role of the media. One is this particular type of protest, the horizontally structured, apparently spontaneous protest, really relies a lot upon media, either social or um, traditional, to impose meaning upon it, to speak for it. And so if media is on your side, that can be that can be all right, but they're still going to be looking at, at the uh, protest and picking and choosing things that uh, they would like to see in the square. Uh, and this is different from, for example, like the, 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 the protests that would have been put, put together by black civil rights organizations in the 50s and 60s, like even though they absolutely were kind of media stunts, like everything is a media stunt in, in uh, I think, the world of hypermediation, you still know who was in charge or who was going to be explaining what was asked for. Um, but then if the media does not like what you're doing, and I think this is something that I've experienced recently with these pro-Palestine protests, is that the media can just say whatever they want about what is happening on the streets. So these, because they are fundamentally communicative actions, um, you are, you must understand that uh, uh, it is going to be mediated, of course, through the media in ways that are going to matter. Um, and this is a lot of interviewees came to the conclusion this was a weakness of this particular form that it, it 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 gave too much power to people like me or people at CNN or like the guy on Twitter or the girl on Twitter that gets the viral post which defines the thing. Um, and then secondly, this is I think one of the other tragic sort of slippages or or unexpected um, conundrums in, in in the decade is that these mass protests become so massive they get so big that they actually generate revolutionary situations. But a fundamentally communicative action cannot form a revolutionary government. Um, it might be able to elaborate, elaborate demands if it is well-structured, but like a protest, a demonstration, um, is not going to actually be able to seize power and push the country in a new direction. So you had this strange situation in certain moments in the, in the decade where people continued to like, send messages to elites that were no longer there. They were like still, <laughs> that's, you know, that's great, they were, yeah. you know, they were, they were in, standing in the square demanding that the people in power fix things, but there were no more people in power. Um, that would have been a moment that other revolutionary um, types of other types of revolutionary moments in history would have taken advantage of and tried to like actually, you know, form, you know, depending on where you are, like a dual power situation or actually, you know, depending on how easy it is to take over a given state, or at least you're like, 
lodge yourself into a position where you have leverage, but um, you had this strange disconnect between media, media, or at least mediated actions and revolutionary situations. Yeah, I mean, and I think one of the things that illustrates that is the way that these things can seem kind of in many ways a bit trite or silly at the same time as deadly serious. And one of the ways that that happens, I think, is the use of pop culture. One of your interviewees in Hong Kong reflecting back on the protests of 2014 and especially 2019, I think it's a little sad that we got many of our ideas from pop culture. And so like you have these kind of kind of silly mean things, but at the same time, often leading to situations which are proto-revolutionary, which at any rate change the course um, of the history of their countries um, and lead to changes of government or, um, you know, different structures or whatever. And so I kind of struggle to wrap my head around it like, okay, so these people are doing, you know, something that they learned from from the Hunger Games. Um, but at the yeah. same time, this is also going to lead to a, a massive reorientation and affect not just that own country, but that country's relations with other countries, international relations, and so on. And it's kind of like, I don't know, there's a weird kind of breakdown between high and low all in one go. Yeah, in Hong Kong especially, I think there's like, a, these are tragic conversations that are had. Because like, Hong Kong, first because of the British, but then because of the strange and like, very, very dysfunctional way that they were integrated into the PRC, like isn't supposed to have political culture, isn't supposed to have political organizations like British imperialism, like basically did not allow for like intentionally um, the kinds of organizations that could act as in, you know, as concrete uh, uh, parts of society in the way that, you know, we spoke about Tunisia. And a lot of these kids, like they were like looked at, you know, very, very wistfully be like, yeah, like we just kind of thought it would be like the movies. And we don't know what we even thought was supposed to happen because we ended up kind of declaring war on Beijing, but like we're a tiny city in a much, 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 much bigger country. Hong Kongers, at no point did Hong Kongers ever want independence from the PRC. I mean, if you ask them for if they wanted particular types of democratization, you, you often get a small ma ma majority that would say yes. But at no point did they actually want the autonomy from the PRC or the full independence from the PRC that's, that came to be some of the loudest voices are often echoed by sympathetic Western media. And they look back and like, yeah, we just kind of thought it would be like Hunger Games or like V for Vendetta. Um, and, uh, you know, it, but it, as you know, as everybody learned a couple of years later, it was real life. And, 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 and it was Beijing in that case that stepped into the, the they waited it out. And then they just, I think, kind of accelerated the process of integration uh, a couple what years about later. the just a quick i mean i know alex wants to come back on this um just a quick question about hong kong and then i had another question by the media but on hong kong one thing that was suddenly flagged up by the british press um i don't know elsewhere but it was the use of col of the old colonial hong kong flag um yep. obviously as a way to flatter the you know it was obviously a way to flatter british sentiment as to um, the benefits of the empire and so on. But I wonder how significant was that? Or was that a minoritarian aspect of the protest? So it certainly became widely represented. I mean, Finn Lau, who came up with the, if we burn, you burn with us. Um, not even a slogan. He just, it was a gift that he attached to the a post uh, and that went, went viral and then became sort of uh, a thing that people were actually holding in the streets, like an actual slogan or an actual sign that people were holding in the streets. I interviewed him two times here in London. And the second time I interviewed him, he showed up with like a, a monarchist pin on his, on his lapel. So like he um, is pro uh, uh, British monarchy. 
But I think that what happened in the in in Hong Kong is that there was indeed one moment where quite a lot of normal people were on the streets, and those people, the vast majority, if you ask them, you know, was British imperialism a good thing, or is Donald Trump a good thing? They would have said no, I believe. Um, but as things went on longer and longer and longer, you had more and more radical groups that were active and acting in spectacular ways. Uh, and one of those spectacles was the unfurling of the British colonial flag yeah. uh, in uh, the LegCo. Another one which got quite a lot of attention. And this was interesting because this was an element that was picked up by two very different uh, uh, types of media. Uh, when they started waving the American flag or pictures of Donald Trump, this were, these were elements that were picked up by both like Fox News and Beijing. Both Beijing and Fox News loved to say that that was what the whole thing were all, was all yeah, about. Yeah, that's interesting. Because, you know, Marco Ruby was like, look, they love America. They want us to help. They are, and you know, absolutely some Hong Kongers and some of them that became prominent in uh, an increasingly right wing and increasingly nativist. As the, as the year went on, it became more right wing and more nativist. Uh, did believe that somehow that this would only work if the United States swept in and 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 saved them, and that was never going to happen. Um, but again, like that mistake or perhaps intentional misrepresentation was characteristic of, of Hong Kong. The one that claims that the thing that is happening in November with kids in full riot gear, um, you know, or you know, in the most extreme cases like lighting a guy on fire or. Um, beating up a man for speaking Mandarin are the same thing as the mass protests in June, which yeah. were just against the extradition bill. But like that absolutely think, happened and it mattered to the way that it was, it was interpreted. Yeah. I think it, it reinforces your point. I mean, the kind of the sheer, the political naivete that it would, you know, that it would require to imagine that Britain was going to, you know, go to war with China to, you know what take back hong kong right. i mean it's completely absurd you know it's the fantasy politics and right. i mean des you know i suppose you could attribute it to desperation but it's also it just seems to me given how high the stakes genuinely were also just um at another level kind of um you know unforgivably stupid it would seem to me if i had been in hong kong and so again it kind of speaks to um i think it speaks to that like you say that kind of deracinated media driven aspect of the protest. But on the flip side, I, the other, I wanted to just kind of quickly get your view on this because it just struck to me, struck me while listening. I, I mean, how much of it was also just the, you know, the Western media, and I'm thinking of a particular kind of Western journalist whose reference points, like you say, um, I don't know, maybe a millennial journalist, yep. uh, maybe a Gen Xer, you know, whose reference points, like you say, are all basically, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yeah, that's the only um, reference, yeah. Yeah, and nothing really, kind of no meaningful ability to differentiate political options, ideological differences, to understand the historical roots and how they map out, probably don't speak even, you know, kind of that many languages. Um, so I wonder, I mean, how important was that, just the dumbness of the people who were arriving from the New York Times or CNN or whatever, Um I mean, how important was that? I mean, I don't overstate it, and I guess I'm, you know, obviously I'm biased, but... I mean, maybe I pay particular attention to it because I'm like, this is my class of people. So I, I think it's important for me to be critical, but I think it's important. I mean, I'm not going to like, yeah, uh, I did. So Daniel uh, Vukovic, who's a Hong Kong based academic and Al Lung uh, Yu, who are um, both, uh, who's a Hong Kong leftist. They both come to the conclusion that this 
the Hong Kong protests became hyper-mediated, just really all about this positive or perhaps negative feedback loop between the kind of things that would get to you positive press in the West. So people would learn subconsciously or consciously what kind of things they could do that would get them coverage. And then they would just do more of that. And then that became the thing. Uh, and then a lot of the Hong Kongers that did it came to the same conclusion. Like it became so hyper-mediated. And again, I don't like this conclusion at, at a deep level yeah. because I, I like to think the history is driven by more important stuff. But yeah. I think that I think that you I think they matter. I think that really like the the like lizard brain, everyone's doing liberal revolution. Every time there's crowds in the street, it's Berlin Wall. I don't need to read a history book. Uh, that's all I need to know. Uh, bad government cracking down. I don't need to ask what's going to come afterwards. Yeah, I think yeah. the dumbness of people in my class actually matters quite a lot. And I really wish it didn't. I think, And, and in Ukraine, I think it matters a little bit. I really wish it didn't. Um, uh, and, you know, yeah, I'm not going to go even specify countries. But I had interviews with some colleagues where I would say, you know, in whatever, in, in X country that you were covering, uh, what were the demands? And they would kind of be like, they like didn't know. They like, I was like, well, yeah, but what was the, pl- like, what were the, what was the most prominent um demands like what was what would have been success for that particular movement and they're like well i don't know but the government was bad and was cracked was using police brutality i was like yeah, yeah i know that like the, this is a geopolitical enemy uh it's they're bad uh they're they're, they're using police repression that's bad but like what did the movement want and they like didn't know yeah. and then i and, they were, and then they'd be like well i wasn't really on like the built on like the uh the the um forums where these things were being hammered out because i can't read uh the language of that country and i was like okay well you you were like really responsible for representing this thing to the world and tragicomically to reconfiguring the 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 actual thing on the street i think right right that, yeah. that, that's really that's a very important point it's not just representing it outwards right it's representing back to its back to itself yeah 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 and again i don't like i don't love it i wish you know it's it seems too silly and 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 uh uh what's that word it seems too frivolous to like yeah. To include in a work of serious global history, but like perhaps we live in an era in which you know the most you know thousands of years of human science and technology have all been directed towards distracting and uh, stimulating human beings in a way which is deeply uh, um, uh, moving, but also um, has negative consequences. And so you know maybe it's somehow material too, but it's it's a strange it's a it's a strange thing that comes up. I think with this particular type of illegible protest explosion yeah no absolutely i think you even conclude about you know is it all silly or is it all actually incredibly meaningful and and um these moments of popular eruption where everyone feels connected and love and all the rest of it and it, it i mean it, it's real um but also you you know you leave leave the possibility that it's kind of all fake or manipulated and it's quite hard to tease the two apart um and i guess you have to kind of go on a case-by-case basis um i'll I'll ask you about kind of your conclusions about it in 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 just a second there's a couple of other two other things actually i wanted to raise one is um i mean you've made comments about this being the kind of western press in many cases western media reinterpreting and reinterpreting the meaning of these protests which are often kind of diffuse anyway but then kind of channeling back to to something um that maybe the participants didn't didn't intend um but there's also a, a sense um i think you make some reference to the fact that these are generally the, the countries that you talk about are in the global south um right. maybe hong kong doesn't really count uh in that regard but it's maybe an ambiguous position um yeah. none of them are in the traditional first world that's what yeah I mean. 
and and I I wonder what your thoughts are on this. Like, are these sorts of protests more necessary in those sorts of countries? Um, did you choose to cover them because you thought things in Spain or Greece were less important or um, less urgent? What, what, what's the kind of uh, rationale behind the selection of these um, of, of the cases that you look at? Um, and do you is there a political point behind it? I guess. Well, the 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 criterion that I um, for the inclusion in this book was that protests got so big that they either fundamentally destabilized or overthrew an existing government. But again, I made up that criterion myself. I could have I could have fudged it however I wanted to include different countries. Um, but I think there's a couple reasons that things like Spain, Greece, and Occupy Wall Street not only don't get big enough to fundamentally dislodge um, existing governments, but also don't enter into this strange contradictory, um, this kind of like tragic conundrum that we've been discussing. So on the one hand, if you're in the traditional global north, if you're in New York or, or uh, uh, Paris or Madrid, the global media and the most powerful governments in the world will grant your repressive apparatus in your given nation the benefit of the doubt to repress as they see fit. And they will say, oh, yeah, well, whatever they're doing, they're probably like putting in jail the people that are breaking the law. And they're probably um, treating respectfully the people that are not breaking the law. Um, very rarely are going to get the kind of re-representation which like beams out to the world. This government is no longer legitimate. They've become a tyranny. They're they're cracking down on their on on their population in a way which means they're no longer the democratically elected country. Um, that we all believe them to be, which is like arguably something that shouldn't have happened in places like Brazil, Turkey, and Ukraine, because as imperfect as those democracies are, um, often if you have a, a leader who's fucking up, the best way to resolve it is to let voters pick the next one. Um, and then in the case of like actual imperial counterattack, I think I say this in the book in like half a sentence, but it's kind of like, I mean, it's glib, but it kind of matters. Um, Libya uh, is, ends with uh, NATO launching a regime change campaign that destroys the country. Um, if you're in NATO, NATO is not going to bomb itself. NATO, like you're not going to get like the type of international pressure from outside that really forces the, to get things over the line. And, and so to get over the line um, to fulfill this criterion that I made up, a lot of things have to come into play. It has to be multi-causal, but I think one of them ends up being uh, the view from outside that you've lost legitimacy, your place in the global order will not be backed up by um, more powerful uh, entities. But then part two, which is this real slippage, this real strange contradiction, this thing that like, where this hypermediation becomes so problematic is that often if you're looking at what people are really asking for in the global South, their view, they are, they're asking to join the first world in the sense of we want your money. They're asking to reconfigure the global s system in a way which will re require changing the rules, taking some power resources away from the first world and transferring them to the global south. They're asking for something that is properly uh, anti-systemic. But often these are read as protests, which are just like, we want to join the global order as partners with the first world. We want to become junior America, right? So so properly, I, I think so often like third world is goals because to like really get people in Ukraine, the economic um, outcomes that they're asking for in um, 2013, they can't just like be allowed to associate with the European Union. There has to be like real investment transfer uh, of of resources. There has to be a reconfiguration of the relationship. But often this gets read as like, oh, they just want to be our partners. They want to 
they want to be on our side against the bad countries. And so a conclusion that I come to in the academic version of the talk that I've been giving about this book is that this particular form, this particular type of mass protest really works best if it's a pro-systemic uprising, if really you just kind of want to let the existing global system pour into whatever power vacuum you can create. If you want to somehow reconstruct or if you want to somehow impose uh, the global order, if you want to change the rules or to sort of push against it in some way, uh, that's going to generate a counterattack, some kind of a counter-revolution. And this particular form is very, very poorly suited to withstanding a counter-revolution. So in Egypt, for example, the a lot of the original organizers came together under uh, came together through pro-Palestine solidarity or through opposition to the war in Iraq. They saw a democratic movement in Egypt as necessarily anti-imperialist, um, but they were sort of shocked, horrified, surprised to find that the media showed up and just said that they were a pro-Western movement. Um, and if they were just a pro-Western movement, if they were what we thought that the Berlin Wall was, if they were just asking for sort of the world system to pour into the power vacuum, that might have worked. But because they actually um, were taking on existing structures in the region, it became much more difficult to sustain. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's fair enough, um, though it does raise serious questions about strategy um, if you're in one of these countries, um, which can be so easily dominated um, and to a certain extent, makes us, I say us because I'm in Brazil, reliant on, on the global north <laughs> and revolution, revolutionary change in the global north for um, for things to to really change. Um, but I don't know if you have... No, that's, what, that's what Hassam says that at the end of the book, right? Because there's a, there's the two Egyptians that say, well, uh, we need to le- ignore the global north. We've learned too many lessons from them. We need to do things entirely on our own. And then Hassam, who's one of the... Uh, uh, organizers in January in Egypt, he says, well, actually, it's only going to work if we are like, <laughs> if we can somehow weaken or <laughs> help carry out revolution in the global north anyway. So uh, we, we can't really ignore that. Um, but again, neither, 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 uh, 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 neither course of action is very easy. It's they're both quite, quite daunting. Yeah, so I mean, amidst all the disappointment, um, sometimes tragic uh, disappointments, um, very bloody disappointments in the case of Syria, for example, um, Ukraine, um, and and otherwise just kind of very serious kind of downturns in, in events, um, the election of Bolsonaro in Brazil, for example, uh, and a, a kind of on the subjective side, probably the cultivation of a certain, um, well, people learning certain lessons, I guess, which is that, well, we can't have nice things, maybe, um, or that it's better not to ask for too much. And at any rate, there's going to be too much foreign infiltration and involvement. And um, maybe this is just the US trying to do whatever and manipulate us. And, you know, you started off with the example that in Egypt, that people you tried to interview all warned that the other people you were interviewing were actually spies. Um, So that I think, you know, uh, really shines a light on degree of suspicion that ends up being cultivated in the wake of failure and defeat. So I wonder what your, you know, do you have a positive take home here? Um, or, or is that your point that like, maybe, um, you know, maybe all this protest thing isn't worthwhile? Well, if, if it appears slightly pessimistic, or if it appears um, like we can't have nice things, I think it's because it's a book about tactics. Right. And so if you're just looking at because I approach I build it around a particular type of response that gets very important in the 2010s. But if ultimately the lesson and this is what a lot of, you know, hundreds of people, um, you know, the sort of reason that they sat down with me in the first place is because they, they believed in learning a lesson. But if one of the things that comes up 
um, out of these conversations is that there's a mismatch of tactics and goals. I think that an apparently pessimistic story becomes quite optimistic. Um, maybe not, you know, automatic, you know, in the teleological sense, like, oh, it's going to all work itself out on its own. I think that's a, a real, a real mistake to make. But if indeed we're just dealing with a, a mismatch between tactics and goals, well, then that's not so hard to, to, to deal with. That is something that you can say, okay, that's the mountain that we can climb, but at least I know which, where it is. It's not so hard to, to do that. If there is the existing and demonstrable desire across the global system to change or improve it somehow or another, people are willing to, to take risks. People are willing to put their lives on the line. But there's just this lag that is, you know, sociologically um, well established that tactics sort of take a while to catch up with conditions across the, the, the history of human contention. Then I think then the story becomes a lot more optimistic um then you, what you have to do is just sort of learn from things and 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 match responses to the ultimate goals but i do think you have to also at the same time as, as philip indicated earlier be very very careful at, about selecting your battles and selecting the moment for them you know it doesn't make sense to to pick a fight you're going to lose and if you're not quite sure that you can improve things right now then you should wait until you can um but you know we have lots of time we have lots of time to wait for the next opportunity. I don't think it's I don't think it's so pessimistic. I think even the most like traumatized or or you know, the MPL even like they they were torn apart, but even like the most traumatized and and disillusioned people are still and like involved in some way or another in like attempts to improve the world. Cuz like what else are you supposed to do with your life? You know, like you know, what, what why not like learn from things and try to 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 adjust um uh, uh, to circumstances in a way that will make next time more successful. Well, absolutely. And one line which one of your Egyptian interviewees says, reflecting back on um, the failure of the Arab Spring, we thought representation was elitism, but actually it's the essence of democracy. Well, that's very good. Um, it's nice for him to say that because um, I want that <laughs> on a banner. So yeah, <laughs> I, want, yeah. I want that on a banner for the next wave of global protest. Unless we're doing anarcho-primitivism, unless we're going back to bands of like 30, 40 people, there's going to be representation. So the question is whether or not we choose which type we're going to have. Very good. All right. The books, uh, If We Burn, um, I knew many of these cases, some of these cases, having followed them to various different degrees, but many of them I didn't. And having them all together here, not as kind of separate chunks, but as a kind of chronology and a story that's told, allows you to make these connections between these various different events, which um, it's hugely enlightening. Um, and I would recommend listeners go and pick one up. The book's out now. Thank you, Vincent. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Vincent. Thank you.